Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I wrote a novel. I'd forgotten it. <laughs> I'd forgotten I wrote a novel. It tells you how bad it was. Uh, what happened was Liar's Poker came out, and everyone was saying you have all of the gifts of a novelist. And, and the problem was maybe that was true up to a point, but the point where it wasn't true is I had no ability to make things up. And so, so when you can't make things up, you got problems as a novelist. The thing is, it's like there's no structure when you're writing fiction because you just could do anything. You just do anything. I know. And then to change it, you could just make it totally different. So, like, how do you know what's good and what's not? It, it's baffling. Here is hot, my contract with Hotter and Stoughton for a novel that was going to be called Tokyo Rocks. And it says, it's marvelous to have this novel on board. Oh, my God. I wrote. A hundred, a couple of hundred pages. Um, the research department felt hollow when he arrived, with everyone still in the morning meeting. The offices along the padded corridor were as dark and barren and full of the loneliness, loneliness of empty ambition as the cleaning ladies had left them the night before. <laughs> the, the loneliness of ambition could have been a title instead of Liar's Poker. I'm Michael Lewis, and welcome to Other People's Money, a Liar's Poker Companion. This is our fifth and final episode. We're going to call it Tokyo Rocks. The name of the novel, I think we're all a little bit relieved that I never finished. It's funny how we tend to forget about failure. We remember the successes, and we look back on our life as this chain of the things that worked. But the things that didn't work are actually the things that guided you on the path that worked, in some ways, they're more important than the things that did work. They channel us. They give us the guardrails that define our career and help us to kind of move forward. And that's why I wanted to talk to George Saunders. He's the author of, of course, Lincoln in the Bardo, for which he won the Booker Prize. 
He also wrote several collections of short stories, including Pastoralia and 10th of December. His most recent book is called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four Russians give a master class on writing, reading, and life. George wrote the book, but the book is really the story of George learning from the Russians how to write a short story. He's an absolutely breathtakingly wonderful writer, and it's hard to imagine that he ever had trouble producing anything other people would want to read, but he did. He's someone who started with a failure and learned from it. I want you to start by telling me the story as if you've never told it about Loboda de Eduardo. <laughs> yeah, thanks for bringing up that painful subject. <laughs> no, no, it's, you know, it's, I think that there's something universal about Loboda de Eduardo. And I want to yeah. hear the story about, just from the beginning, like, what is this thing? So a friend of mine got married in Mexico and Paula was nice enough to, you know, stay home with the baby and let me go. So I go and it's a really fun, beautiful wedding in central Mexico, really kind of wild. And uh, I took copious notes. I had a notebook, I had a tape recorder, and I'm just, you know, recording all these sort of details. And I come back and I say to her, basically, you know, don't worry, honey, you're sitting on a gold mine. I got this. (laughs) (laughs) So so I'm I'm working full time and we have a baby and it's just like madhouse. But every night, you know, I'm a pretty hyper person anyway, but I would have a pot of coffee after she went to bed. And I would stay up for as long as I could uh, writing this book about the wedding. And, um, you know, sometimes only 11, sometimes two or three, then have to get up and go um, be a tech writer during the day. So at the end of some period, I don't know how long it was, I had 700 pages and the book was called La Boda de Eduardo, which I think is just like Ed's wedding. Wait, wait, let me just stop you. So it's you had 700 pages that you generated out of this single experience of a visit to Mexico to, to attend a wedding? It, yeah, it was like a four-day visit. So, it was, you know, like everything was described there. You know, so I thought oh, 700 is too much. So I cut it down, you know, in Hemingway style to whatever, a, th- a very lean 300. Uh, and I was just like, I did it. I can't believe it. I did it, you know. Uh, and then I handed it to Paula and I did the thing that all writers do, which is, don't worry, there's no rush. Just take your time. And then I hit around the corner waiting for her to start, you know. And uh, when she did read it, I just, I looked in and she couldn't have been any more than on page five or six. And she just literally had her head in her hands like, oh my God, this is what made this last year such a misery. He was always so tired and grouchy. And it was, as soon as I saw that reaction, I'm like, okay, uh, and something just dropped. Like, oh yeah, I knew that wasn't good. You know, I, I could feel that there was nothing in it, but labor, you know? Um, so that was La Boda de Eduardo, which I, I looked at a couple of years ago and it's just as drudge contaminated as I remembered. (laughs) But this was going to be in your mind in the beginning. This was going to be your first book. Oh, my breakout. Yeah. I was going to sell it and stop working as a tech writer. And this was going to be it, you know, but it was so funny because literally, you know, there's, I think when we aren't writing well, we kind of know it. And so in her reaction, there was just no joy. There was nothing but, oh, and, and as soon as I saw her face, I'm like, yeah, I know that. I know. Not to dwell too long on a painful experience, but <laughs> all you did was go attend a wedding. It's not like you went to war or or worked as a, a longshoreman or you spent four days at a wedding and you thought that was going to be enough. Yeah, it was no good. But but again, I thought the the what I needed in my life was something unusual, you know, and that was certainly a beautiful, unusual experience. You, you didn't trust your own self. No. And your own experience. And w- so what is your, what are you doing at that moment? W- what is your job? 
I think at that point I was working as a tech writer for a pharmaceutical company in Albany. So I was just taking these uh, reports, like these really kind of sad, um, these almost hideous reports of tests done on animals. And then I'd start with a big pile of those and have to summarize each one of them into a report that would go to the FDA. So it was just, you know, and then the, the weird thing was the, these tests were actually being done in the basement of the building. So if you happen to take a shortcut downstairs through there, you'd see, you know, these beagles and slings and these uh, rabbits. And I think there were monkeys and, you know, all this. So, I mean, all of that stuff was pretty rich, but I guess I'd never seen it in literature. So I didn't, it was just stupid old life. So there was no way for me to, you know, know what a pivotal moment it was in my life. I mean, I had a young family, we had no money all these things. But that didn't seem like literature. That was just life. It's funny how hard it is to figure out what's interesting. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for a young writer, I I just had, um, you know, kind of a thought cloud with all these Hemingway stories in it, or Isaac Bobble, maybe at that point. And, uh, you know, it's hard to make that jump from, I mean, you can even sense that your life is interesting, but how do you actually you know, get it? And I think voice is the key to that, because this Laboda de Eduardo was very kind of stentorian and serious and modernist, you know, and lots of omitted articles and stuff. Um, but it was, there was nothing new about it. It was all me trying to do somebody else, basically. And not just even, not even one writer. You're Hemingway in some places and Joyce in other places? Yeah, it rotated. It depends, you know, I'd give up on Hemingway and go, no, I, that's imitative. And then I'd go imitate Joyce or, you know, there was a, there was a heavy Kerouac thing at that point. And um, so that was the other thing is, you know, the, the idea of kind of scrolling through these other voices uh, that's not it. I do mean, you, when you look back on it, do you think it served its a purpose that imitative period when you were trying to be Hemingway or trying to be Joyce, or could you have much better launched your career if you'd never gone through that phase? No, I think I had to go through it. W- one reason is in that you know it's funny. It seemed to me like if you are writing in a boring voice, a voice that does you no favors, then you might actually get better at stuff like plot and causation because that's kind of all you've got. Your voice isn't helping you any. So I think I got better at just the sort of basic story stuff of A leading to B leading to C. And then the other thing it does, which is really powerful, is it made me so frustrated, you know, so anxious. And so it was like a building up of, of frustration because I knew the writing was the only thing I had to do, really. It's the only thing I really liked. And it made me crazy. And I know you'll, you'll sympathize with this, that I didn't sound like myself. That drove me nuts. And then uh, this small thing happened where I was in at work transcribing a, a conference call. It kind of was like the note taker. And that was really slow. So I just started writing these little poems kind of after Dr. Seuss. And they were real silly. They had no Hemingway quality at all. They weren't serious. They were kind of scatological and they were sci-fi, you know. Uh, and they were in that kind of Seussian rhyme scheme, you know. And I brought those home and Paula just happened to read them and she really liked them. She was laughing, you know, just so that was the first pleasure anybody had gotten out of my work in many <laughs> years. Um, and that kind and of- And you thought of it as just a throwaway thing. It was just a throwaway thing, you know, but I did it out of the same kind of energy that I use every day. Like when I was at work joking or, or somebody was mad at me, I'd talk them down or, you know, the kind of everyday charms that I would use routinely without even thinking about it were in that piece in a way that they weren't in the- you know, the Mexico novel. So, so that kind of flipped a switch. Coming up after a break, how George Saunders was singled out as a gifted child. And I was not.
As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. It took me a while when I started reading Liar's Poker as an audiobook to figure out why it was taking me so long to do it, why I kept stopping and interrupting myself and questioning it and wanting to rewrite a sentence here or wondering why this character wasn't developed. And I realized after a while it was because I was reading myself going through a process very like the process George went through with his wife in private, only I was doing it on the page in public. I was sort of learning to write a book by writing a book, and all of it ended up in print. And I had these sensations of, oh, I know what was happening there, and if I was just more in touch with myself as a writer, I might have done it just a little bit differently. Like when I was reading the top of chapter two, which is set in St. James's Palace in London. First, we're going to hear from the book, and then you'll hear my reaction to it. At the end of the meal, the 84-year-old queen mother tottered out of the room. We, the 800 insurance salesmen, the two managing directors from Solomon Brothers, their wives and I, stood in respectful silence as she crept towards what I at first took to be the back door. Then I realized that it must be the front of the palace and that we fundraiser types had been let in like delivery boys through the back. Anyway, the queen mother was headed our way. Behind her walked Jeeves, straight as a broom, clad in white tie and tails and carrying a silver tray. Following Jeeves, in procession, was a team of small tubular dogs, called corgis, that looked like large rats. The English think corgis are cute. The British royals, I was later told, never go anywhere without them. Let's, tell, you know, let's take a, mo- a moment and just talk about this for a sec. Can we do that? Yeah. So, um, I was in a Dickens phase when I was writing this. 
there were two things I was reading. I was reading a lot of Charles Dickens, and I was reading what I took to be brutally straightforward memoirs, um, Education by Henry Adams, uh, Rousseau's Confessions. And it reeks of Dickens. It's like, I'm a young man looking for a position. I love it, though. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but you can see, you can, I can, I, it, the, the prose in this chapter smells. I would never write anything like this now. It feels a little mannered. And who is suitable for the for this setting? Maybe, but I, I think when I'm reading it, who is this little snot? And I have a feeling that there were an awful lot of people who read it at the time and said, "Who is this little snot?" I don't actually want to be too hard on myself. I mean, everybody has influences, and George Saunders and I talked about this a lot. Just rewind the tape a little bit for me and explain to me how you even get the idea that you want to be a writer. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, in retrospect, I think it was reading uh, this book called Johnny Tremaine by Esther Forbes. And uh, a, nun, <laughs> a, a nun gave it to me in third grade and she, I was kind of in love with her. And she, she pulled me aside and she said this, these magic words to any Catholic kid. Uh, the nuns, some of the other nuns and I have been talking about you in the convent. It's like, what? You know, it's like. And, and she said, I think you, you're reading at a higher level than your classmates. Try this. It's, she said, it's really hard. Some of the other nuns think you can't handle it, but I think you can. You know, so, so that's a throwdown, you know. And yeah, so I just read it and I did love it, actually. Forbes is a great stylist. And I, I just noticed how she was doing weird things with syntax, the kind of risky things that I felt even then. These things she was doing with the syntax made me see the world more immediately. I remember walking around the parking lot. Uh, you know, where we'd have a recess and then just thinking in Forbes's diction, you know, that feeling of just like everything I saw, I would describe it the way I thought Forbes would. I had an experience with Johnny Tremaine and my experience with Johnny Tremaine puts my character in a really unflattering juxtaposition to your character. So you read Johnny Tremaine as a precocious third grader and start thinking about syntax. I didn't get to Johnny Tremaine till my really appropriately named seventh grade English teacher. Mr. Downer was his name. <laughs> uh, Mr. Downer handed me Johnny Tremaine along with everybody else in the class and said we had to write a book review of it. And you have to trust me when I say everything that follows was done in total innocence. I got home with Johnny Tremaine and I looked at the back cover and the back cover had an excellent book review of the book on it. <laughs> it was just, you know, 250 words. It described what the book was about. And so I thought, this is the efficient way to do it. I'll just copy this down and hand it in because this is, if he wants a book report of Johnny Tremaine, <laughs> um, he couldn't get a better one than this. So I copied it out and I handed it in and it came back to me a few days later and the grade was an A, but it said in big, big red ink, see me. And so I went to see Mr. Downer and he said, where did you get this? And I said, oh, I just copied it off the back of the book. You said you wanted a book review and it seemed like an excellent one. So I thought that was the best way to do it. And he said, that's plagiarism. Now, I'd never heard the word plagiarism. He could have said it, it it's... Um, botulism. It, it, it could have been, yeah, it could have been botulism. It could have been, it could have been anything. I thought like, what's plagiarism? And he said, he made me go look at a dictionary and look up plagiarism in the dictionary and try to internalize what a horrible thing it was I had done. And I still couldn't feel like I'd done anything wrong. And so he made, the first thing he did, does is he makes me, he makes me go see the headmaster, the middle school headmaster, the principal, who proceeds to throw me out of the school. 
Oh, my God. Uh, I was expelled from the school. But then I'm wow. readmitted. And Mr. Downer then, in a huff, makes me write a thousand times over and over on a piece of paper, I will mm. never plagiarize again. I will never plagiarize again. And you didn't feel you'd done anything wrong. And hand in these thousand lines. And I, and I, to this day, I've never read Johnny Tremaine. So <laughs> it, 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 it does my heart, it warms my heart to know that book had a positive influence on someone's life. So back to the subject of voice of like where this comes from. You see me saying two things at once. One is that there's something that is essentially you on the page that you were evading when you're pretending to be Hemingway. But at the same time, it's not as simple as just putting you on the page, that you're creating something that just isn't like other things. And that gets you to you. Yeah, and I think it's the radical preferring. For example, when I was editing that first book and writing it, I was always trying to avoid the usual constructions. So, you know, just small things like- um, uh, This is this is Civil War land civil, and, yeah. and bad decline. Right. So just like if I found myself typing a phrase that I felt a little tepid about or that seemed like, yeah, well, it has to be there, I would try to take it out. Uh, same thing with events. Like I, I was really trying to do that thing where I, I wasn't describing people coming into rooms. They were just there, you know? Uh, so it was sort of like, I, I think efficiency was one of the, the watchwords, and then just unconventional juxtapositions. I mean, they were all things that I was feeling in my, sort of in my chest more than thinking about. But the real thing was, don't let this get lost in a pile. That was actually the way I thought about it. The funny thing is, that's not unlike my psychology, because I was always kind of a show off and kind of a, a ham, you know? Right. And I always knew in a crowd of people how to talk in a way that the attention would come to me. So it was an inadvertent allowing to the table of that, which I really was. When, when you start writing in this new mode, where you were self-consciously not grabbing for Hemingway or Joyce or someone else as a crutch, when do you get your first positive feedback, apart from the Susian poems? Like, when do you first, when do you first get the sense of like, hell, this could work? You know, honestly, Michael, it was, the, it was as soon as I wrote the first couple of paragraphs, I'm like, oh, and, and the feeling was, I know what to do with this. You know, with the Hemingway stuff, I, I get a draft and go, I don't know. I wish there was somebody I could ask. I wish Ernest was here, you know, <laughs> but, but with this new mode, I, it was just like, um, I don't know how you'd say it, it was like, you know, I kind of knew which way to go. You know, I knew uh-huh. which sentences fit and which didn't in a way that was miles above with the Hemingway. With the Hemingway, I just, all I could do was kind of try to make it sound more like him, but that's an idiot's game. But with this stuff, no matter what I wrote, I knew whether it belonged or not. So that's another thing I tell my students is one of the symptoms of writing in, let's call it your voice, is that you have strong opinions about it. You're not having that terrible neurotic feeling of, I don't know if it's good. I don't know what to change. You actually have really fierce opinions, maybe fiercer than you would normally admit. That was a symptom of it first. It's a good, it's a very good sign. Yes, I I think it is. Now, I mean, you know, you can have, I had some opinions about the Hemingway mode, but this was different. And then I also had a secondary feeling, which was like, I really don't care if anybody else likes it. Like, I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing, and I just don't care anymore. I have, a, I have a weird question for you. If I had been a fly on the wall and you didn't know I was there, and I was watching you write Laboda de, de Eduardo, <laughs> then I came back and I watched you write uh, The Wavemaker Falters, would I have... You think I would have detected a difference in your demeanor? I think you definitely would have. You know, it was like bent over, 
sweating and weeping versus sitting up straight, hoping nobody walks into my office and busts me because I'm on a good roll, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But I also knew, I felt like I, I just need 15 minutes. If I can drop into any place on any story, I can improve it because I know what I like now. And I don't, I didn't used to know what I like, but now I know. So that was a nice thing because it meant I didn't have to have a six hour block. Uh, I didn't have to be in any particular mood. I didn't feel like I felt like I could just, it's sort of like if you put a shoe on, you know whether it fits or not. You don't have to be in the right mood. You just, you just know. But it's also, it's play. It's play. You're playing. You know, it's funny because Tabitha, my wife, she said, do you know that when you're writing, you're laughing, you're laughing all the time? Oh, wow. And wow. I had no idea. I, I, I had no idea. And, and I said, basically, then I realized I'm basically laughing at my own jokes, which is its own thing. But nevertheless, I was sitting, I was actually just laughing all the time. I'm wondering if you've had that experience where you thought, I I wrote this story and it's about this, or it was supposed to be funny, or it was supposed to make you cry, and instead you got a completely different response from readers than you expected. Yes, and you know, I I, when I was writing those the stories in Civil Warland, I didn't really know what anybody would feel. I didn't even know what I felt. So I kind of developed this idea that what you want to do in fiction anyway is you want to create this space. And I always call it a black box, like in black box theater, but you want to create this space. You're going to go in and do this thing we've been talking about, like check out every sentence, check out every transition, make it fast, make it whatever. But I'm going to try not to think about themes. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to think about politics or any of that. It's like, I'm trying to make a roller coaster that's really intense. I mean, I don't think the roller coaster ride thinks he's going to convince you of anything. He just wants to thrill you or, you know, Yes. Afterwards, so then, you can say what it meant. Yes, you right. can get your own meaning out of it. And, and he doesn't. He's gone. He's on to the next roller coaster. He does. You know. But he wants you to come out of it going, "Whoa, what the hell? That was." You know. Uh, he doesn't want you to come out and go, "Oh, interesting. It's about patriarchy." <laughs> you know. No, that's he right. He wants you to be a little <laughs> unable to speak for a few minutes. So that was kind of the my basic model. Was, let me just jangle somebody in here, uh, and know that when if the reader gets spit out on the other end and it's jangled. I've done my job and there will be all kinds of things to say about it. You know, if you want to talk about it in terms of politics, we can, if we want to talk about aesthetics, sure. But the main thing is the difference between the writers we love and the writers we sort of hope won't send us anything is the jangle, I would say. And at the end, if you've done that, you've also at the same time sharpened the meaning of it. Now, maybe it's not a meaning that you can articulate. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully it's, it's something more than could be said, you know, in, in one sentence, because otherwise just write that sentence. But there is some weird thing where honoring the sort of internal dynamics of the story, trying to make it give off the most light, also makes it say something. And the thing that I live for is that it says stuff that I didn't know I believed. Yes, where people come to you and they almost enlighten you about yourself. Yeah, yeah. Or you, or even sometimes at the end, I'm like, oh, God, yeah, I do believe that. I just didn't, I didn't know that was a thing, you know, or I didn't know this simple uh, belief could actually have a, uh, an articulation. I have this rap of being good at explaining complicated things. That's supposedly what I do. And it's so different from what I think I do. Um, I, that I think I explain only what I need to explain for, to, to make the story work and to right. satisfy certain demands that the character has made, the characters have made on me 
and that to deliver the characters, I need to explain this stuff. And I actually don't even think, this is a horrible admission, that I have a responsibility to explain the complicated thing. I think I have the responsibility to make the reader feel like it's been explained, which is different. Make the reader feel like they can move on happily and they understand the situation the character is in now and we don't have to worry about that anymore and never mind about, you know, collateralized debt obligations. Right. Now, see, that's beautiful. And I think what you what I'm hearing you say is that you're basically serving the structure of the story. And so when someone says you explain complicated things well, you're thinking, well, no, what I actually did was I min- I explained the minimum I needed to set up the structure of the story and to make, make the story move ahead. And I think that's related to voice, too, because when we're reading one of those sections of yours, what I'm feeling is the, um, the courtesy and the efficiency. You're writing it saying, I know I need this for this down the road. So you're doing it efficiently and you're doing it with an eye to my taking away from it what I need to. But that, you know, I think efficiency is another part of voice that's really important. Is the voice serving the needs of the story or is it serving the needs of the writer to show off a little bit? Like La Boda de Eduardo was full of flourishes that did no work. You know, and I think a, a, re, a reader will feel I, I just resentful. Think, you know, by the time we're done, there's going to be a massive market for Lobota yeah. and Eduardo. <laughs> it's going to be the worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was great. George, this was just fabulous talking to you. And I, it's me too. I love it. I don't know what to say at the end of this whole series. It's been a total gas going back over my first book and being able to express in the form of five podcast episodes my responses to it and process it with writers as great as Ira Glass and George Saunders. I guess I just want to thank everyone who participated in it, especially the secret characters from Liar's Poker who had no reason to be exposed. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again soon when we launch Season 3 of Against the Rules. Other People's Money was written and hosted by me, Michael Lewis, and produced by Lydia Jean Cott. Catherine Girardot is our showrunner and sound designer, and Julia Barton edits the scripts and also serves as our chief unboxer. Matt Weiniger composed the music, and Beth Johnson checked facts. Mia Lobel is our executive producer. We record at Berkeley Advanced Media Studios with engineering by Topher Ruth. Special thanks to Brendan Francis Newnham, and the rest of the book's team, including Jasmine Faustino. Thanks also to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Jason Gambrell, and Brant Haynes. Our marketing and operations team includes Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Mary Beth Smith, Royston Preserve, Maya Koenig, and Daniela Lacan. Brianna Brady provided research. Additional scoring by Pamela Lawrence. Other People's Money is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review. If you don't like the show, please don't. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can buy our new Liars Poker audiobook, unabridged and read by me, the author, at pushkin.fm slash liarspoker and also at Audible. I'm going to leave these boxes here so they can do, take pictures when we want to take pictures of them. And, okay.
But I can leave it here still, right? Okay. All right, anything else, Julia? No, no, thanks for doing no, that. No, it's great. I think, is there, think there's stuff we can use? Yeah. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.